I want you to imagine it's a Friday night, you're in shul, and the singing and the feeling, it's just incredible. You can sense the kedusha, and you can sense a certain feeling in the, in the air, and you just feel so, so different. And it's almost strange, because here I am, this physical being, having this oh, spiritual experience, and, and, and it almost seems strange. I'd like to share with you that nothing could be further from the truth. You are not a physical being temporarily having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual entity temporarily having a physical experience. And this thing that we know as life is exactly that, just a passing temporary physical experience, but I, the one inside, I, the one who thinks, I, the one who feels, the essence of me is completely, utterly, totally spiritual. And that is one of the most eye-opening, transformative, and basic concepts that a Jew has to have when he approaches any of his avodas Hashem, and even more than that, when he approaches life. And it's a rather curious thing that we human beings spend our entire life doing this thing called living, and rare it is that we think about it much, and rare it is that we focus on who I am, what my actions do, what change do they have upon me, upon others, and more than anything, what am I doing here? We're going to spend a lot of time in the coming series focusing on who I am, understanding the essence of me and what it is that makes me up. But to really begin that process, I'd like to focus on one very important question. And it's an important question that we seem never to ask. But that question is, what will it be like when I die? Right? Listen, it's going to happen. It happens to everyone. It happens to every occupant of the planet. No one I know shook hands with the Grohl or with George Washington. Every human being has a certain amount of years on a planet, and then they leave. Bodies put in the ground, and they separate. So here's the question. I am a human being. I, as every other occupant of the planet, have a set amount of years, and when that time is up, I leave. What's it going to be like when I die? Now, I have really two points to share with you. Number one, isn't it rather curious that we never address that question? Meaning, we are very thought-out people. We're very intelligent, we're very deliberate, and we're very, very judicious in what we do. Everything that we do in life, we think about. What school I'm going to go into, what career I'm going to pursue. When a person gets married, they don't just say, well, whatever, you know, she seems like a nice person, I'll, I'll marry her. You do everything in your power to make sure that this is the right one. Serious decisions require serious deliberation. And we approach every serious decision in life with very careful deliberation. Before a person invests money, he doesn't just say, well, whatever, I'll throw some money there. You look, you research, you think about it. When we approach everything in life, we're very deliberate, very calculated, very, very judged and thought out. 
Yet oddly enough, the most pivotal question of our existence, why we're here, what life is about, and even more than that, what is it going to be like when I leave this planet, never seems to cross my mind. And that should be a very, very curious fact. How is it possible that if I'm such a thought-out person that I don't think about what is it going to be like the moment after life ends? I think about retirement. I think about my investments. I think about everything that I'm going to go through in life because, my goodness, this is serious. There are consequences. If I don't have enough money to retire, I'm, I'm going to be in big trouble. If I don't have enough money to pay for my kids' weddings, it's, it's going to be rough. So clearly, I view the future. Clearly, I recognize consequences. See, here's the question. How is it possible that I don't deliberate, that I don't spend an awful lot of time thinking about that moment after? I understand it's going to happen. It's going to be there. How is it possible that I don't address this question of what is it going to be like? What am I going to experience? What is it going to be like after I leave this earth? And the fact that we don't ask that question isn't casual, isn't by accident, but is actually a very deep part of the Bria, part of the reason why Hashem created us. And Chavetz Chaim explains to us that when Hashem created the human being, Hashem gave us this very, very unusual feature called Bechira, free will. And if I were ever able to fully, fully get it, to recognize that I'm here for a few short years, and my time will come, and then forever I will be what I shape myself into, if I recognize that that moment is going to come, that single cognition would so change every aspect of my life that I would lose free will. And because of that, Hashem put blinders in our eyes that don't allow us to see that moment, that don't allow us to feel it, and don't allow us to experience it, because if we were ever to fully, fully get it, we would lose free will. And you could see this all the time, and no matter how much muscle you learn, and no matter how much you focus on it, it's very, very difficult to really, really see the end of my days. When my grandmother, Allah Shalom, was uh, an older woman, she would go every summer to the Lake House Hotel, and I would visit her once a week, and I remember very, very vividly, I would come there, and she'd be sitting with some of her friends, and I'd stay there for a while, we'd discuss, we'd talk, and I remember at a certain point, I was sitting around many of her friends, and, and at a certain point, someone mentions, I Nebuch so-and-so died. Another person says, Oi, all the old people are dying. And all the people around the circle said, Yeah, you're right, Taco, the older people are dying. I looked around the circle, and these were all 85-year-old women plus. Many of them had lost husbands. Many of them had even lost children. And yet they were talking about the older people who die. And again, the Chavetz Chaim explains to us that Hashem created us with this certain cognition, this certain understanding that there are groups of people who die, unfortunate people, sick people, and there are people who die, older people, but I happen not to be a member of that society. I have no intention of dying. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to live forever. Now, even though as I say the words, I realize how ridiculous they are, but that is my operative mode. That's what goes on in my mind. That's what I experience. And again, the reason for it is because if I were ever to see that moment clearly, I would recognize the gravity of my actions, the seriousness of my ways, 
And that single cognition would so change my reality that I would lose free will, and therefore Hashem makes it very, very difficult for us to see it. However, it is probably the single most important thought that a human being can ever have. The Mishra Sharm explains to us, Yesod HaChasidus, the source of everything, the energy source, the root of all of our avodas. Hashem is one single question. Why did Hashem create us? What are we doing here? What's the purpose of life? And once you focus on it, it changes everything. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time, because in this series we're going to deal with who I am. I'd like to focus on what's it going to be like after I leave this earth. So to do that, let me begin with an interesting question. Okay, my body's put in the ground, I separate. What color are my eyes going to be in the world to come? Right? Good question, right? Meaning, are they going to be brown, blue, beige? What color are my eyes going to be? And the answer is, they're not going to be any color. Because when my body is put in the ground, I separate, but I'm no longer in this body. My eyes, my hands, my legs, my chest, everything that I am housed in now is put in the ground, I separate, and for eternity, I am what I shape myself into. But you see, I am not the body. And if you spend a lot of time dwelling on that and thinking about it and recognizing that when you have those moments, when you're in shul, and it might be Rosh Hashanah, it might be Yom Kippur, and you have that spiritual experience, and at that moment you have to say to yourself, I get it. I'm not a physical being temporarily having a spiritual experience. I am a spiritual entity temporarily having a physical experience, you begin to become much more attuned to who you are. But I'm not the head, not the chest, not the legs, not the eyes. I am the one inside the body. Now usually, when I talk to people about these kind of concepts long enough and we spend enough time in it, I get that sort of look of the semi-conscious, that sort of glassy look like, oh, Rabbi, I get it. I'm not the head, I'm not the chest, I'm the neshama, neshama. I was a high school Rebbe for many years, and it was a four-letter word that guys were not allowed to say in my shir, and that was the word neshama. And I'd like to explain to you why I wouldn't allow guys to say those words. I would typically begin the Musr part of the year with the following question. I would ask the guys, gentlemen, tell me the following. Why don't you sin? But I don't mean little sins. I mean big deal stuff, loot, pillage, murder. Why aren't you out there doing every single evil act you've ever thought about? Now, these were good guys from good homes. They were into learning. And they would say, Rabbi, come on. Hashem will be angry with me. I'm not going to do that. And I would say to the guys, listen to me very carefully. Throughout the millennium, many, many Rishon, many wicked people have flourished. Don't you worry about Hashem. You do what you want. Oh, yeah, that's true now, but my neshama is going to burn. I don't want my neshama to burn. At which point I would look at the guy who said it and say, Aha, you're telling me there are many things that you would do, many things that you don't want to do, but you're all going to do them or not do them because your neshama, you listen to me. You do what you want. Take care of you. Why should you work so hard so your neshama should have a good time there? You take care of you and let your neshama burn. Now, whenever I said this, I'd be standing by the door, 
I didn't want to let a guy leave before he heard the answer. I didn't want to hear 20 years later a guy becomes a serial killer. You know, Rabbi Schaefer, you said, but what's the answer to that question? The answer to that question is something that Rizal Salanta explains to us. He says, we make a fundamental mistake about death. Death, who can know? Death, darkness, black, oh, it's over. Uh, who can know? Explains the Rizal Salanta, death is really very, very simple. If you'd like to understand death, all you have to understand is, imagine I walk into a room, take off my coat, hang it up, and I am in the room. The coat is on the hanger, I'm in the room, explains the Rishoslanta, that is death. The body is the coat. I'm wearing this coat temporarily, but much like an astronaut who wears a suit but takes the suit off and emerges, when this body is put in the ground, the coat is off and I separate. But you see, it's not my distant cousin, not my neshama, some alter ego, some splinter-down version of me. It's I. I, the one inside. I, the one who thinks. I, the one who feels. Not my arms, not my head, not my chest, but me. I, the guy inside. That's the one that separates. And I am what we refer to as the neshama. It's not some distant cousin and not some splinted down version, it's me. The problem that we have with death is we think of death like going to sleep, right? You go to the base solemn, you see, rest in peace. Harvey was a good man, he's in his final resting place. Rest in peace, Harvey. Explains to Rizal Salanti, you're making a fundamental error. You see, going to sleep means I'm not there. I'm not conscious. Imagine you break your arm, you take Tylenol, doesn't help. Codeine doesn't help. And finally, 3 a.m., you fall asleep. Your arm doesn't hurt you anymore because you're not there. That's going to sleep. But that's not death. Death is the body's put in the ground, I separate, and with a brilliant awareness, I'm fully acute, fully there, remembering my entire existence, but more than anything, being utterly, totally present. You see, if you think of death like black going to sleep, and then the question that I asked those guys is very valid. Why should you work so hard so you're neshama, some distant cousin, some alter ego, should have a good time over there? You take care of you and let your neshama burn. Explains the Rishos Lanta, that's the biggest mistake you'll ever make in your life. Because you see, you have to recognize that you are the neshama. That's exactly what it means. You are that one inside, you're the one who thinks, you're the one who feels, and when the body is put in the ground... I separate. But you see, it's I, fully alert, fully conscious, fully aware, me. Not asleep, not as in Harvey's in a final resting place, fully alert, aware, it's me. And again, this is a very, very key concept to be thinking about and a very, very important concept to dwell on because it impacts every issue of my life. Every decision that I make, everything that I'm involved in. Because as we learn through the rest of the series, we're going to discover that great Chiddush, that every action impacts me, every thought is a part of me, and every mitzvah shapes me, every avera damages me, but everything that I do in this thing called life shapes the essence of me. But the important part is to recognize who I am, what affects me, and why the mitzvahs are so integral to my growth, to my existence. 
And to understand that, we have to understand who I am. So again, number one, I'm not the body. I'm not the head. I'm not the chest. I'm the one inside. And if you've read through some of the Stop Surviving, Start Living, or some of the Shmooz material, you know that I spend a lot of time on clearly identifying me as opposed to the body. Because while we're in this thing called life, we confuse the two. Ow, you punched me. Now, a more accurate sort of way of thinking about it would be you punch the body that I temporarily occupy, but the problem is I am living in the body. And since I'm living in the body and I experience life through my senses, it gets to feel like I, 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 I am the body. And, and, and what do you mean I'll live without the body? I, how could I be alive? I, I mean, I, 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 I am the body, aren't I? And it's going to take a long time until we clearly identify who I am and we better recognize what in fact happens when I leave this earth. And let me really begin with one simple observation. What happens when you go to sleep? Right? Not a bad question. Right? Meaning I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm right here, and then I go to sleep. And suddenly I'm not there. Now just so you focus and clearly hear what I'm saying, in the good old days when you had a tyrannical despot, the way you got rid of him was you wait, waited till he went to sleep, and when he was asleep, someone came and slit his throat. Why? Because he might have been a powerful individual, but when he goes to sleep, he's not there. It's lights out, he's not present, and in that moment, he can't defend himself. So what happens when I go to sleep? Where do I go? So I'd like to share with you one very important concept. As long as you are alive, you, the one inside, are subject to physical experiences, hot and cold, pain and pleasure, things that come to you through the body. Now, you're going to experience them because I'm inside this body, and as long as I'm housed inside this body, I relate to the world through my senses, I feel things through my senses, and I experience things in this existence called life. One of the realities of being in a body is something called tardema. <clears throat> tardema is sleep. Sleep is the lights go out and I go offline. Now, where am I? I, I I'm, I'm not there, right? Now, the body's breathing, and <clears throat> when I wake up in the morning, I can even remem remember things that I experienced, certainly dreams, or maybe waking up and going back to sleep. So what happened? And what happened was the essence of I am subject to this thing called sleep, and it's lights out for six hours, eight hours, whatever it may be, and then I awaken. But I went somewhere during that interim time period. Part of me left. Part of me left this world, and part of me got to experience other parts, other things. As we get into things more, the Derek Hashem will explain to us what exactly happens. But this is the point. And that experience called tardema, or sleep, is a reality of this current existence. When my body is put in the ground and I separate, no longer does sleep apply. No longer do I slumber, but I am acutely alert, awake, totally cognizant, and for eternity I experience that super powerful reality of being awake. But understanding who I am 
and understanding my relationship to this body requires a lot of thinking. Many times when I talk to people about this, they begin to get that sort of like awakening sense of, oh, I get it. I get it. I'm not, I'm not the legs. I'm not the head. I'm not the chest. I'm, I'm, I'm the brain, right? So I'd like to share with you that is patently false. As I'm not the head, as I'm not the chest, as I'm not the legs, I'm also not the brain. You see, honestly, I've never been to an autopsy, but it is my firm belief that when they put that body into the grave, along with the body is the brain. I am not the brain. Temporarily, while I'm in this body, I'm forced to think through the brain. But the brain is something that's clunky, that's slow, that's concrete. I remember some things, forget other things. I could be learning a tosis one minute and fully, fully get it. And then the next day, it's gone. Like, where, 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 where did it go? The reason for that is because as long as I'm alive, I'm forced to experience things through my brain. But I'm not the brain. I think through the brain. I process things through the brain. But it's me, the one inside, who's forced to use the brain. You see, I'm not the brain. The brain is put in the ground, but I'm the one who thinks through it as long as I'm alive. And just like while I'm alive, I'm subject to this thing called sleep, where it's lights out and I'm not there. And so too, as long as I'm in this body, I have to process things, experience things, see things through the brain. But the brain is very, very limiting. I remember some things, I forget other things, but one thing for sure, I don't have total clarity. If you'd like to see an illustration of the difference between me and the brain, I'll give you one illustration of what it's like when I leave this earth. If you go to New York City to the Holocaust Museum, you'll see a very interesting entranceway. As you enter the museum, there's a very long, tall room with a sort of curved wall. Floor to ceiling, I don't know, maybe 75 feet tall, laden with pictures. Pictures and pictures and pictures all over the wall. Young people, old people, women, men. What they're trying to depict there is to put faces to the Holocaust. Six million Jews is a number that's very difficult to, to <clears throat> grapple with, to sort of put your, put your mind around. So what they try to do is give a face to that reality. And you'll see pictures. There's an older woman, there's a young man, there's a child, there's a baby. And you'll see hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of different faces. And as you enter that room, it's a very moving experience to feel what it was like in Europe before the war. If you'd like an illustration of what it's like when we leave this earth, imagine I close my eyes, put the body in the ground, and I separate. And in a whoosh, a brilliant flash of reality, every moment of my life is right there. As a young person, as a middle-aged person, as a child, as a father, pictures and pictures, hundreds, thousands, thousands of moments of my life, but all of them right there, acutely aware of them, but not just aware of them, they're me, because I experienced them, I thought those thoughts, I did those actions, and every single moment of my life is right there, brilliantly illustrated, powerfully there, and I experience all of them at the same moment. Now, how could that be? I forgot what I ate yesterday. How can I remember what I was like when I was 15? I was 18. Who remembers what I was? Who can remember that? 
And the reason that I can't remember what I did yesterday is because I'm forced to experience things through my brain as long as I'm in the body. But the brain is a very, very limiting organ. It doesn't allow me to remember things and doesn't allow me to concentrate too much. But I, the one inside, remember every detail of my life, every interaction with another human being, every conversation, everything that I thought, everything that I did, every moment of my existence is etched into the essence of me. And when my body's put on the ground and I separate, whoosh, in one brilliant stroke of reality, every moment of my life is right there. And that is an interesting illustration that we're going to deal with a little bit later on in the series that we're going to discuss because understanding that moment is very, very key to understanding much of life. But here's a simple reality. No matter how much I work on this, and no matter how much I think about it, I will never fully get it, never fully embrace it, and even if I really, really work on it, by the next whatever may be, it's gone. I can now say I've been working on these concepts for 40 years. And I go to funerals, and I go to shiva houses, and I think in, and I dwell on this. And it's not depressing, quite the opposite. And when a person really, really understands life, and you really understand that there's going to be an end, it is the most empowering, most powerful, most galvanizing thought that a person can have. Why? Because you see, when you understand that there's a purpose to life, when you understand that Hashem put us here for a few years, I'm here to grow, I'm here to accomplish, I'm here to change the essence of me, and who I will be for eternity is based on how I use my time, life becomes extraordinarily precious. Every moment, every thought, every action is a huge opportunity to change the essence of me, change others along with me, and life itself is the most precious commodity imaginable. If you'd like to understand the depressing thought, and depressing thought is if life ends in the grave. Imagine that you and I are like Elsie the cow. And Elsie the cow dies, her nephesh just evaporates. Imagine I hit the grave and it's black. If it's black and it's over, like going to sleep, that is the single most depressing thought I could ever think of. Why? Because all that I am, everything called life, comes to an end. My entire existence stops. Everything, me, me, I, my, life, life itself. There's nothing more precious to a human being than his own life. And if at that moment I stop being, oh my goodness, the party ends. It's the end of it all. It's the most horrific, horrible thought a human being can ever think. But once you understand life, and once you understand that we're here for a few short years, a spiritual entity temporarily having a physical experience, every moment of life is precious. Every moment of life is an opportunity to grow, to change, to become someone bigger and better. Understanding that life has a case, has an end, isn't depressing. It's galvanizing. It's powerful. It's a catalyst for growth and is one of the most empowering thoughts a person can have. But again... It's something that Hashem will never allow us to fully feel and fully experience because otherwise I would lose free will. And in that context, let's understand something that Derech Hashem explains to us. He explains that when Hashem created us, Hashem had one goal in mind. Hashem is the native. Hashem is the giver. 
Hashem wanted a share of His good with others. And therefore Hashem created the entire world, everything in existence, the stars, the moon, the sun, the cosmos, everything from small to great for one reason, to share of His good with others. And the source of that, the target, is Adam, is man. Hashem put us in this world for one reason, to give us an opportunity to enjoy the greatest pleasure imaginable, to be close to Hashem and have the greatest holiness, to have the greatest Kedusha, to be Shalem, to be perfect. But Hashem put us in a situation that allows us to be challenged because we need to choose who we'll be. To truly be that Adam Shalem, to truly be Dovik to Hashem, a person has to make the choices. And therefore Hashem created the entire world for one reason, to give us a chance to grow, to accomplish, to become who we're going to be. This world is what I call the gym. If you've ever gone to a gym, you'll know there's a very focused purpose in existence there. The reason you go to the gym is to work out, to do the exercises, to do what you're supposed to so that you're physically fit and so that you have vigor, health. Working out should be enjoyable, but it's a very focused, purposeful experience. You go to the gym to work out, and the reason is so that later you can enjoy the benefits. That is this world. We're put into this world to grow, to accomplish, to become what we can be, and when we leave this earth for eternity, we are what we shaped ourselves into. But here's the great challenge. If I am a neshama, a pure spiritual entity, and I was put in this world for one reason, to grow, to accomplish, to become what I could be for eternity, how can there be something called free will? How could I have free will? Meaning, I'm an intelligent, thinking human being. I don't do things that are self-destructive. I don't drink bleach. If you offered me a $1,000, I wouldn't take a cup of bleach and drink it. If you asked me to put my hand in a fire, I wouldn't do it. Not for $100, not for $1,000. I won't do things that damage me because it's the height of folly. It's foolish. I won't do it. Here's the great challenge. How do you give a human being the ability to become great or the opposite? Free will means you can choose. You can choose to be great or you can choose to live in the mud. And you can choose to perfect yourself or you can choose to just wallow around and waste your existence. But here's the problem. I know I'm here for a purpose. I'm a thinking person. I know I'm here for a few short years. I know for eternity I'll be what I shape myself into. And therefore, once I've read the Mesil Shasharim, and once I've read the Derech Hashem, I get it. I understand. I'm here to grow. Let's go. How could I ever be challenged? How could I have free will? And we're going to spend a lot of time on this concept, but if you want to understand it, I have a very simple muscle. Imagine that you get to meet Moshe, 18-year-old Yeshiva Bacha. And Moshe is a fine fellow, and this is the first year Purim, he decides his first year base Medrash, he's going to get drunk, but good and drunk. And there you see Moshe, Purim day, he's out there on the street, hey Moshe, what are you doing? I'm playing in traffic. Moshe, what are you doing? I'm playing in traffic. Moshe, you're going to get hit by a car. I know. Crack, smack my back. Moshe, you're going to get hit by a car. They're going to send you to the hospital. I know. Smack, crack my back. Go to the hospital. I'll put pins in. <laughs> go to the metal detector. Ding, ding, ding. Now what's going on? You're having a discussion with a fellow. 
He realizes what's going on. He understands the consequences. <clears throat> Smack, crack my back, put pins in, go through the metal, de- metal detector. He realizes that there's a certain reality here, yet he's playing in traffic. And by the way, if you'd like to know what really happens, and just play a video of that moment the next day when Moshe wakes up sober with a hangover, and you show him the video of him playing on 13th Avenue between the, the cars. Oh my God, what was I thinking? Now what happened? What happened was at that moment, Moshe was drunk. Drunk means he was there, not quite there. His brilliant, sharp mind was greatly dulled. And his thinking was greatly impacted. He saw the consequences, but not really. He understood what would happen, but not really. He was drunk. If you'd like to fundamentally understand our existence, I am Moshe, that yeshiva book. I'm drunk. I might be drunk with anger. I might be drunk with jealousy. I might be drunk with desire. But one thing for sure, my absolute brilliant thinking mind is dulled, and seeing the consequences are, is something that I'm never going to be able to fully understand and never fully realize, because again, if I did, I would not have free will. And one of the most difficult concepts for us to understand is that Hashem created us with pure free will. But free will means exactly that. I could go left, I could go right, and it's my decision my decision that leads to my ultimate destiny. And when you understand that, you understand a lot about life. People always wonder, why does it have to be so hard? And I'm put here to grow, to accomplish, to serve Hashem. Why? It should be easy. I should want to learn. I should want to dominate. I should want to do chesed. Why is it such a challenge? Why is life so difficult? Why does it have to be such a bitter, bitter battle? And that's exactly the point. You see, if it were easy, it wouldn't be your choice. Every human being only wants what's good, what's proper, what's best for them. No human being wants to suffer. If I understand that who I am for eternity is based on what I shape myself into, who could have free choice? But it's even more than that. The Torah tells us very, very clearly, it's this world and the world to come. You, you read the words of Shema. Vayayim Shema, if you listen to the words of the Torah, you're going to have a beautiful life in this world. It's not the reward for the mitzvahs, but your, this world is going to be beautiful. Why? As the Rambam explains to us, because Hashem says, you're doing my will, I want to make it easy for you to accomplish exactly what you need to do. <clears throat> you're going to have rain in its right time, you're going to have prosperity, you're going to have health, everything that you need, you're going to have. So here's the point. The Torah tells me very clearly, if I follow the words of the Torah, I'll have this world and I'll have the world to come. I'll have prosperity, I'll have health, I'll have well-being in this world, and I'll have the world to come. I'm no fool. I read those words, so that's it. All I'm going to do is follow the words of the Torah and let's go. And that's exactly the point. If I did not have this drunken state called existence, I would be the perfect tzaddik. But it wouldn't be my choice. I was put into a world where I recognized the results. I recognized the gravity of my actions. I understood what I do do will impact me forever. And therefore, of course, I chose what's right and good and proper. But much like a malach serves Hashem perfectly, but not because a malach has real free will. Oh, the malach has free will. In theory, the malach could disobey. But the malach sees things with such clarity that a malach would never violate Hashem's will. Why? 
because it sees with absolute clarity every mitzvah is for its benefit, every avera damages it. And if you like to fundamentally understand the difference between us and malachim, a malach has free will just like a human being does. I know when you're in third grade, your Rebbe told you malachim don't have free will, only human beings do. It's not correct. You'll find many situations in Chazal, <clears throat> malachim made mistakes and they were punished. The difference between a human being and a malach is a human being has very, very little clarity. A malach sees things with absolute clarity of vision and understands everything that Hashem commands is for the benefit of that individual as well as the entire existence. Every mitzvah helps, every avera damages. A malach has free will, but a malach would never disobey Hashem's will. Why? Because it's foolish. It's like me putting my hand in a fire, like me drinking bleach. A malach never would do it. Why? Because a malach sees with absolute clarity of vision the consequences, the results. And therefore, a malach cannot grow. In the entire existence, and the entire cosmos, there's one entity and one entity only who can change himself, and that's Adam, that's a human being. You see, a malach was created on whatever level it is, static. Whatever level, great, greater, greatest, and that's its level, and that's where it will be for eternity. But Hashem did not create us that way. Hashem gave us a capacity to grow, to accomplish, to be far, far greater than Malachim, but also the opposite. We are credited with what we do. We are credited with our growth or the opposite because we were given practical free will. A Malach has theoretical free will. In theory, it could violate Hashem's will, but never would because it understands so clearly the consequences and the results. Therefore, it's not credited with any positive action. It was programmed that way, and did what it knew what's right, and it did what it knew to be proper, because that's the way Hashem made it. But to allow man to actually become what he's going to be, Hashem put us in this drunken state. And in this drunken state, sometimes I get it, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I see it, and sometimes I don't. And more than anything, sometimes I have the right sense of mind, and sometimes I'm in a bad mood, or I'm angry, or I'm upset, or whatever, and I just don't care. I don't care. What do you mean you don't care? You don't care about you? You don't care about the future? You don't care about what you're going to be? I don't care. No, I don't care. What do you mean? How can you not care? And if you think about it, we human beings, as intelligent as we like to think we are, as well thought out as we like to think we are, are utterly, completely illogical. Catch me in the right moment. I'm generous, kind, and giving. Catch me in the wrong moment, and I'm a creep. The same human being. The same. I'm in a bad mood. My feelings were hurt. My ego was touched. Now I'm going to... And I'm going to do things that are so disastrous, hurt me, hurt other people. And afterwards, when I wake up, ask the person who lost his temper, and he said words that he knew he shouldn't say, and he said them, ask him how he feels after. I can't believe I said those words. I'm, 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 I'm embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed, I can't even admit it. It had to be your fault. And I'll come up with all kinds of excuses to blame you because I can't accept the guilt that I could be so foolish. How could that be? How could that be? Because Hashem is very, very good at doing that which Hashem did. Hashem created us in an environment and a world where a human being really has free will. I could really become greater than Malachim or I become lower than low. But to allow for free will, Hashem put us in this body. But I'm in this body and everything that I experience comes to me through this body. 
And even though it's true that I'm a spiritual entity and temporarily having a physical experience, I'm mixed in and mixed up. And everything that I experience and everything that I go through shapes me, makes me feel differently. When I'm hungry and I'm tired, I'm cranky. I'm cranky. I, I, the same one who can be generous, kindly, and patient, when I'm hungry, I'm cranky. Why? Because my body affects me, the world around me affects me, everything influences me, and I am like Moshe, that drunk Yeshiva Bacha. I get it, but I don't get it. I understand it, but I don't understand it. Believe me, no human being, no matter how angry they are, takes their fist and smashes it into a brick wall. I may be angry, but I'm not stupid. But that's the point. I don't see it clearly. I don't understand it. I'm in that drunk state, and I say things, and I do things that later come back to haunt me. And that is the reality of being a human being. And what we're going to do throughout the series further as we go on is understand how things affect me, understand what really happens, how things influence me, more than anything to understand why Hashem gave us various mitzvahs, why Hashem warns us against various activities, because at the end of the day, I was put here for one reason, to grow and accomplish, and every mitzvah helps me grow, every avera damages me, but understanding how they play out and understanding how they influence me is a lot more difficult than it sounds. This basic concept is the most fundamental concept that a human being could ever come across. And that is that I am a spiritual entity, temporarily having a physical experience. I'm here for a few short years, challenged, given the opportunity to grow, given the opportunity to become great. But when my body is put in the ground, I separate. And for eternity, I am what I shape myself into. Everything that I experience, everything that I go through, leaves an indelible mark upon me. It becomes a part of the essence of me. And that's why the Torah is replete with so many warnings and so many cautions. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Because every action I engage in, every thought that I think, becomes a part of me for eternity. And understanding that I'm not the body, understanding that I have a few short years here, understanding that everything that I do greatly impacts me is one of the most eye-opening transformative, galvanizing thoughts that a person can have and is one of the most empowering. The more you dwell on this, the more you think about it, the more you make it a part of you, the easier it is to feel. But again, at the end of the day, it's going to be something very, very difficult because to allow for free will, there's always a certain blockage and always a certain inability to realize it will always be Moshe, that drunk Yeshiva Bacha. The idea is as much as we can to sober up as much as we can to gain a sense of perspective and gain reality. That's what the mitzvahs do. That's what learning Torah does. That's certainly what learning Musa does. But at the end of the day, we're going to always be within this realm of somewhat drunk, somewhat conscious, somewhat alert. And I'd like to close this session with one last observation. This idea that I'm here for a few short years and I will be the same I after I leave this earth used to be very difficult to relate to. used to be very hard to feel, and used to be something that was difficult to really to come to grips with. But I believe in our day and age, this is something that's obvious, clear, and something that's very, very palpable. I'll explain to you why. You see, in 1975, Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life. He was a psychiatrist, and he studied an interesting phenomenon. He studied the fact that many people, when 
they came into the emergency room in hospitals if they were unconscious when they came in and often were not breathing or suddenly their heart had stopped. If they were revived within four to six minutes, they all shared a common sort of experience. They would come in what we call clinically dead, the heart no longer beating, oftentimes the brain even dead. But if they were revived within four to six minutes, he found about a third of them experienced sort of popping out of their body and being able to see things and being able to to recount things and remember things that they had seen when the body was effectively dead. And then when they were revived, they would tell people about it. And they would see things that they couldn't possibly have seen, know things that they couldn't possibly know. And they all had this sort of eerie commonality. They would describe popping out of their body, kind of hovering at the ceiling, and kind of watching or maybe going to other places. In any case, he wrote this book because he studied over a hundred such cases. And in 1975, when he published this book, it made a tremendous stir in the scientific community. It made no sense. What do you mean he's alive? He's dead. His body's dead. He's no pulse, no, no EEG. He's dead. Well, what's the question? But the problem was he was a psychiatrist, and these were studies, and it wasn't just flippant. Since that time, there have been thousands and thousands of such studies, thousands and thousands of such cases reported, and there's even a term for it. It's called life after life, a near-death experience, and it's been a coined phrase because there's a certain reality we don't understand it. We don't know what it means. But somehow, the person lives on after he died. Okay. Lancet Magazine, which is a prestigious British medical journal, published a study, a summary study, of all of the various studies that had been done on near-death experience. This was supposed to be magnum opus, the study of all studies. And they were gathering together whatever data they can about the thousands and thousands of collaborated cases. And they were trying to bring out a particular point. I'm not going to bore bore you with the details of the study, but I'll share with you one anecdote that they brought down. In the study, they mentioned a case of a 36-year-old woman. This woman was admitted to the hospital with an aneurysm in the brain, bleeding in the brain. Normal procedure calls for the surgeon to open her skull, find the bleeding area, cauterize it, sear the tissue, burn it, and staunch the bleeding, close it back up, send her home, good to go, not considered that that life-threatening. But here was the problem. The problem was that the bleeding in her case was so deep in the brain that the surgeon realized that if he went in to cauterize that area, he would cause so much residual bleeding that she would bleed to death. The surgeon asked to meet with her, and he said, Madam, I've studied this case carefully. There's nothing we can do. Effectively, he was sending her home to die. There was another surgeon on the team who asked to meet with her and said, I too have been studying this case, and I believe, I have a theory, we've never tried this before, but I believe if we put you under anesthetic and the surgeon removes the blood from your brain, if he goes in quickly, operates, there can be no residual bleeding because there will be no blood in your brain at the time, I believe that we could potentially save your life. She consulted with other medical professionals. She consulted with a clergy. There was no alternative, so she agreed to undergo the procedure. But here was the problem. There could be no bleeding. They put tape over her eyes, special probes in her ears. They took her body, put it into a bath of ice, and when she was under anesthetic, they took the blood out of her head. The surgeon went in, opened the scalp, opened the skull, found the bleeding area, staunched the bleeding, closed the air back up. They took her out of the bath of ice, put the blood back in, and astonishingly, she survived. 
A few hours after the operation, the surgeon went to visit her to see how she was doing. And he describes that when he walked in the room, she began laughing. Doctor, <laughs> I had the strangest hallucination. <clears throat> when you were operating on me, I, I had this hallucination. That I popped out of my body, and, and I was hovering in the ceiling watching. And now the surgeon didn't laugh, because the surgeon had been through enough near-death experiences <clears throat> that he listened very carefully. She goes on. She said, but here was the strangest part. <clears throat> you know, when I was up there in the ceiling watching, you took this electric toothbrush, and you tried to put it into a vein in my thigh, and it, it didn't go. So you said to the nurse next to you, it, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. <clears throat> you tried a second time. You said, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. You tried a third time, and it fit. <laughs> doctor, isn't that, isn't that funny? The doctor didn't laugh. The doctor turned white. Because <clears throat> part of the procedure required him to take a medical instrument that from a distance could look like an electric toothbrush. He needed to insert it into a vein in her thigh, but the vein was occluded. He tried to put it in. It didn't fit. He turned to the surgical nurse, nurse next to him and said, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. He tried a second time. He said, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. He tried a third time. On the third time, it finally went through. But you see, that conversation between doctor and nurse was held while this woman's body was in a bath of ice. She was blue in the face. He could have screamed at her. He could have yelled at her. She wasn't there. Yet she vividly recalled and when you read thousands of thousands of such cases, you begin to get it. I'm not the body. I'm not the arms, the head, the chest. I'm the guy inside. Put here for a few short years to grow and accomplish. But when I'm done my job here, the body's put in the ground and I separate. I, the essence of me. But understanding who I am and understanding the various parts of me and how things impact me is a lot less than simple and throughout the series, Mitzvah Shem are going to deal with this to a much greater extent.